this is Roger Green, executive producer and host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering three conversations from the recent Paris Nash meeting. In this one, Jorn Schottenberg leads Stephen Harrison and me through review of key talks on day two of the meeting, after which we kick around some high-level issues about the future of Nash drug development and treatment and settle in on one key finding each of us thinks our listeners should take from this conversation. Paris Nash is a meeting rich in out-of-the-box thinking and a great place for understanding basic science and advances in patient treatment. So don't miss a word, but just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Anything else about Paris Nash? Okay, so you are, let's collate the second day, pick out the things that you think really matter. I know Dr. Ranella gave what I would anticipate would be an incredible presentation on emerging therapy. She did. And I think a lot of them we've discussed in parts here previously, but she was right on and, and it was a great presentation. I actually missed the first session on day two, which was on the management of obesity by targeting gut hormones. It was a, it's an interesting topic by itself. And the last session, the last talk in that therapeutic advancement session, however, was on endoscopic, bariatric, and metabolic therapies. My take home here was I'll bite there effectiveness, there is always a barrier for those endoscopic procedures related to accessibility and reimbursement. And even if you have devices and expertise, one of the challenges is to get this to the patient because they might not be reimbursed or might not have the money to pay for those expenses. If you think beyond pharmacotherapy and lifestyle as a basis, uh, you want to offer bariatric endoscopic interventions, this is something that needs to be tackled. Is it inherently likely that you can improve the accessibility by reducing the cost, or do you simply have to get uh, payers and governmental authorities more comfortable with the economic benefit at the end of the story? That's one thing, but then also the experts needs for placement, so you got to go to special places. The advantage of pharmacotherapy is, of course, that you can do a prescription at a primary care physician's office, and, and that the, the accessibility is just much higher from pharmacotherapy. So I thought this was a, this was something interesting there. But, you know, moving on, um, I think there was another session, session six on the biology. Jelena Mann talked on epigenetic determinants of NASH, and they showed an animal model of physical activity, uh, which I thought was interesting. We did a study like this earlier. We're able actually to show the intrahepatic immune phenotype shift. So uh, animals that were working out had changes in the epigenetic signatures, which were detectable. And then there was a talk on cellular senescence and aging in NASH, also a hot topic, um, mostly exploited on the basic science aspect at this point. That second day really had another fascinating session number seven calling called, uh, it was called Clinical Trial Innovation, and there was some NASH trial design strength and weaknesses, some of which we've had discussed before, but also discussion on competing risk and risk analysis in NASH, so I think this will be very important, you know. It is. Every time we come on this podcast and discuss uh, clinical trial data, of course, competing risk analysis is something we got to consider. So I thought that session was also particularly worth mentioning. The topics are interesting. Any particular wrinkles in the findings that would inform the discussions that we have around here? Bottom line, Philip Maturin gave that last talk, and, and he pretty much said that there is a lot of plain analysis of survival curves in, in, in NASH. If you think about a heart outcome and, and mortality, it's so difficult because really the, the attribution of the mortality to the NASH phenotype in the, in the metabolically diseased patient uh, is complex. And you've got to be smart 
start and, and have a good statistical analysis plan to fine-tune what cause that patient has actually died if you look at mortality as an endpoint. And then, of course, the big question is, even if your drugs work, the patient has died, is this related to this endpoint we're seeing here in these analyses? So I think this is this is difficult and something that needs to be discussed. Stephen, I know you, you're very experienced also in, in, in thinking that through. It's just that the couple of Meyer survival curves uh, in, in, an, in a NASH outcome trial might not capture all aspects of, of the drug benefit. Yeah, that's a good point. There's the entire extrahepatic benefits of certain drugs that may take different time points to show an effect. There's also the PRO piece to this. You know, FDA approves drugs based on how you feel, function, or survive. It's not just survive, right? It's feel and function. So Zobert Yonasi talks a lot about the PROs, but that's a, that's a critical piece to this. I'm always amazed. People tell me that NASH is asymptomatic, but I'm amazed at how poor their patient-reported outcome measures are at baseline and how they can change significantly with therapy. It's, it's not something we spend a tremendous amount of time on. We tend to focus on survival and some of the more major morbidities that are linked you know, to it. And rightfully so, because that's the approvable endpoint, right? It's decompensation, males greater than 15, progression to cirrhosis, liver transplant, death. So anyway, I, I, I do think that thinking broadly is, is important. That'll come up in combination therapies, trying to select which therapies are best to put together. You know, it's not just about route of administration or managing another drug's side effects with a drug that mitigates those side effects or the synergies of a drug. It's much more complicated than that, which by the way is another thing Scott Friedman loves to talk about is we should be not only looking at drugs that make sense together from a route of administration or managing AE profiles or synergy, but also drugs that tend to synergize in the effects that it has on gene expression profiles. And to his point, he he thinks we should be assessing these drugs in the lab, assessing, you know, transcriptomics and, and metabolomic profiles and lipidomics to see see what combinations actually make the most sense. But uh, I digress. Maybe we can ask him that when he comes on as well. Well, so A, we got to get him on, obviously. But B, does that suggest that omic work becomes much more important in preclinical and early stage than we've been giving it credit for so far? Or have we always thought it's that important we just have better tools to do it now? Or does it come later in the game? Or is there a fourth option? You know, it, it's, like, it's like I've said before here. The efforts we're putting into this space right now are a relative blunt instrument. We're not really getting after it with a with a surgeon's scalpel and laser focused. And we were reminded by some of the presentations at the Paris Nash Summit that there's a there's a lot more to it than just a drug that moves liver fat mm-hmm. or a drug that suppresses stellate cell function. It's much more complicated than that. We will refine our armamentarium as we move along. I've also mentioned it like this. It's like the Wright brothers learning to fly. Uh, Yorn and I are working with biplane drugs, essentially, right? Drugs that are going to allow us to take that initial step and save lives and make a difference. But 10 years from now, as Yorn watches his children matriculate through high school, he's going to look back and say, wow, wow, we really we really uh, have come a long way in understanding NASH and how to modulate the phenotypic expressions of disease over time that make a huge difference. And we'll get to the fifth generation joint strike fighter and F-22 for NASH therapy that just doesn't exist today. Yeah, I believe so too. I'm looking forward to that day. Anyways, time is maturing. I just wanted to join 
going with you, Roger, if I may, they had a very fine last session too, where they actually called Global Nash. And if I just give a glimpse, because it'll, it'll tell us about the size of the problem and, and the, the, the urgent need to, to move this field forward. They actually got together a number of renowned uh, leaders from all over the world. Um, there was uh, Chowdhury from India. There was uh, Oksana Drabkina from Russia. She's a cardiologist, I think, by training, but uh, did a lot of work related to disease awareness and health literacy. There was Claudia Oliveira from Brazil, Lai Wai from China, Oren Shibolet from Israel, and uh, Gamal Shiba from Egypt. So it was a global global community. And all these experienced hepatologists and physicians, I forgot, Arun, who joined him, Stanislas Paul from France, and uh, Stefan Soitzam, uh, who's very close here to me in, in Frankfurt, were actually received a questionnaire, um, and, and they went through questions regarding, you know, the number of patients they saw now, what's the rate of, uh, what's the change, does Hep C go down, NASH increasing, and bottom line, every one of them says that, that NAFLD has pretty much the strongest increase in disease prevalence in all their expert clinics, and uh, coming on strong on the transplant program. So, in that last session eight, which was called Global NASH aid, you could feel that the power by which this program uh, enters into the real or the everyday life of those uh, experienced clinicians. What's interesting there, right, is that should be accompanied by global urgency to treat and to deal differently. But I don't know that Nash has cracked the code as to how to get to the top of the urgency list yet. I don't know exactly why that is. I think part of it is because it feels like a long-term kind of an issue. Part of it is because, therefore, not as, not going to grab as many headlines as COVID will, for example. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you can see the wave. It's a little bit like climate change. You know, you could see it coming for a long time before it got crazy. And nobody paid enough attention until the rivers really ran dry and the, fi- and, and the fires got nuts and you had ground temperatures in the Arctic over. 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and all of a sudden I said, my gosh, this is really a problem. Mindful of an old cartoon early in the days of the, the ecology movement about a guy reading a newspaper headline on the first caption, second one, he's smiling, and he says, oh my God, I thought it said three to five years. And the headline was, world to experience significant problems in 35 years. 35 years, well, let's way down the pike. Here, you can see it coming, right, and only amplifying. And the challenge is, so what do we do to, um, not for today, because as you say, time is, time is maturing tonight, but what do we do to increase salience beyond what we're already doing? How do you unlock that key? With that, let's go to wrap-up. Okay, really simple wrap-up. One takeaway, people, you two, because you were there, one takeaway people should have from Paris Nash that should change the way they do what they're doing today. And then one thing to think about for five, eight years out the horizon, most important thing. Maybe it was because I moderated the session. Maybe it's because I paid most attention to that session. I don't know. But I was really struck by the novelty of where we're headed with MR technology and how it has the ability to minimally invasively or non-invasively get us the answers we're looking for from an NIT perspective. And then, of course, Scott Friedman's data that we talked about and that whole stellate cell biology piece is so fascinating. And at the end of the day, it's such, it, it is the crux of what we're trying to palliate and, and work around in all the things we do with moving liver fat and modulating ballooning and inflammation. It ultimately comes down to how do we turn off a stellate cell and how do we heal 
uh, hepatocytes. And it would be fantastic if we could have uh, Scott on the podcast to expand on that in the, in the near future. To me, again, the idea of different phenotypes comes up a little bit related to what Stephen said, different late cell populations. That's not going to translate into clinics immediately. Uh, and we'll see a net effect measured by a fiber scan in a patient. But just to understand this in more depth and be able to design therapy and maybe fine-tune down one subpopulation to you know check the balance just a little bit and get a little bit more into fibrosis resolution. This has been the seventh NASH meeting in Paris, and it has really become one of the very specific and focused specialities meetings here where they summarize what's going to happen and where the, where the field moves. And, and I think this was just uh, fascinating to be there again. I, I think I've been at most of them. I believe I missed the first one, but it's one great meeting where really the future of NASH disease research is, is discussed. And, and also the urgency that we got to move on this topic has just been, you know, with that last session highlighted again, because the problem is here, it's here to stay, and we need to define something for our patients to be able to manage them. First of all, Jorn, thanks for a fantastic walk through that meeting, and Stephen for, for sharing what you walked through and questions and comments you had. As I'm listening to you guys, I go back to my statistics roots, right, which is a lot of statistics used to be about getting multidimensional measures down to a limited number of dimensions so you could figure out what really matters. But over time, if you can mentally, well, life is 3D. So if you can find a way to do 3D dimensions and then find little niches within the, and then and then better clarity on each of those three dimensions, you're just going to learn more. Therefore, you're going to solve more. So what I find exciting about all this is that it seems that the theme of virtually everything you, were, you mentioned until the last session was about the ability to extract more information and therefore better insights from the liver using tools that weren't available or using them in ways that people hadn't conceptualized. And that's huge and very, very promising. How to do that given the commercial constraints, the economic situation in the world, the hoops that you've got to go through to even get the, the first generation drugs to market or second generation drugs to market is interesting. But the picture sounds really exciting. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or of the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, September 22nd, with another inspiring topic. I hope you'll join us then. And until then, stay safe, surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.